you know, um, this is the most important weekend for followers of Jesus, going into the celebration of Easter, this, this cosmic event, as we said. But here's the reality is before we can celebrate, what's the celebration for? Because something happened on Friday. We have to look at the events up close as much as we don't want to. We have to look at the cross. We have to look at King Jesus who suffered for us. One of the most helpful pieces of advice that someone gave me about, about reading my Bible is they said, read it like it's fiction. I said, what are you talking about? And they said, well, when you read fiction, your brain is trained differently to look for things because you know nothing is just haphazardly, accidentally thrown in. So you look for things, what are called design patterns. You see something early on, you go, I bet that's going to be important. The Bible is an intelligently written book by both man and God himself. And likewise, there are design patterns in Scripture. So I want us to focus on the cross, but I want us to go back and pick up a design pattern that started on page one, and it carries all the way to the very last page of our Bible. And I believe it's going to help us fill out what is exactly the cross. Let me, let me maybe, um, maybe give you an example before we jump into this. Um, design patterns work really well, even in films. Uh, many of you have maybe seen the movie Schindler's List, a horrible story about the genocide of six million Jews. If you remember the movie, it's shot in black and white by Steven Spielberg. It's a, it's a brilliantly done movie. And if you remember, there's one moment that happens toward the beginning when all of these poor Jews are being rounded up and it's all black and white. You remember what you see? There's a little girl, she's walking by, and she, she's not black and white, she has a red dress. And the viewer goes, I bet that's going to be important, I don't know. And at the very end of, the, of, of this tragic story, and you see these bodies that are, that are being pulled on these carts, and it's two and a half hours, three hours of black and white, and all of a sudden you see a little bit of red cloth in one of those bodies, and you go, that was that little girl. What happened? What was her story? But it was a design pattern. That's a very simple design pattern. There are much more complex design patterns. If you've seen the movie The Sixth Sense, The Sixth Sense is a story about the supernatural realm coming in contact with our realm. And there's, there's a design pattern also has to do with red, interestingly. Every time in the, in the movie when either someone from the other side, from the unseen realm, is going to be touching or contaminating somehow our world, there's something red. But this is a complex one. It's not the exact same thing. Design patterns, it's repetition with variation. So it might be a red balloon. It might be that, that red doorknob on, on his house. It could be bright red lipstick, because otherwise the movie's quite gray and colorless. So the author wants you to see a design pattern, repetition, the red, but variation. It looks differently in different things. Now, I bring that because tonight, what I want us to do is to look at Scripture and notice a design pattern that has been intelligently inserted in there and see how it helps us open up Scripture better. Now, there are many design patterns. Tonight, I want to look at this design pattern right here. I'll tell you what it is. People are like trees, and our destiny is somehow tied or informed by theirs. And you might say, That's, I haven't been reading that Bible, Brent. That sounds kind of weird. I know. Just hang with me. It's there, I promise you. 
So we're going to look at this idea. We're going to start just on page one, Genesis chapter one. If you, if you remember, Genesis chapter one has a creation story, right? Six days of activity. And so there's six days. And it's two groups of triads you're supposed to see these six days. The first three days, God creates domains. The second three days, he creates those who live in those domains. So in the first one, he creates kind of the, you know, up there the skies. And then on day four, he, he creates the lights and the stars and who, are, who, who live in that domain. On day two, he separates the waters. You've got the air and the, uh, and the water. And then on the day that corresponds with it, he creates the water swimmers and the flies, flyers, air flyers. And then on day three, he creates dry land. And he creates animals and humans. Okay, do you see it? It's, it's two triads, and you're supposed to see them not like this, but like this, how you, how you understand. Now, here's, here's the unique part of that. Day one, God creates one thing. Day two, he creates one thing. Day three, he creates, you would expect, ah, he creates two things. There's a bonus creation, <laughs> okay? Day four, he creates one thing. Day five, he creates one thing. Day six, he creates another bonus. He creates two things. Do you know what the bonus things were on those matching days? Fruit-bearing trees and people who are told to be fruitful and multiply. Ah, so the reader right away is going, okay, whatever's going on in this text, I'm supposed to see there's some connection between people and these fruit-bearing trees. And that even the language that's used the exact same phrase is created out of the ground, is used of the fruit trees. It's created out of the ground by the dust of the ground. The exact same language used for humanity. Another connection. As I mentioned, both are said to be fruitful, and both are said to have their seed in them that goes on and on. Then, page two, we get to there are two special trees, really special, right? The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or good and bad. And we're told these two trees represent a testing moment. Will, will our first parents trust God? Because you're told not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Be, and the minute you do, you're going to die. You're going to lose the tree of <clears throat> life. And so we read this, Genesis 2, verses 8 and 9. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. And there he put the man whom, they, whom he had formed, and out of the ground, that's that phrase that was used for Adam, too, but out of the ground, this time, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And of course, we know what happens on page three is they're not faithful, they, they do eat from the forbidden tree, and death is now inserted into the human experience. And humanity is, is locked away from seeing, having access to, the tree of life. And here's the point. The author wants you to think on page three. Here's the question he wants to haunt you with the rest of the book. Will we ever see that tree again? Will we ever get back to it? Will we ever see it? And it's never, it's never mentioned the rest of the Old Testament except the book of Proverbs. But, but God wants you to constantly be thinking about it. He wants you to be bothered. He wants you to have a pebble in your shoe about will we ever see the tree 
again. And so this is a design pattern. So here's what we're going to see. We're going to go through some covenant-making moments. And you know what we're going to have in those covenant-making moments? We're going to have a tree, and it's going to be on a high place, a high mountain. Okay? Trees on high mountains. This is the design pattern. But it's, just, it's supposed to make you keep being bothered by the question, will we ever see that tree again? Because people are like trees, and our destiny is tied to one of them in particular. And again, it's going to be repetition, but with a variation, like, like the red door, the red balloon. There's going to be repetition, but with variation. Now, here's one reason why we often miss this. Is in English, think about this. Um, if you have a tree, let's say in your backyard, the minute you cut down that tree, what do you call the stuff? Oh, okay, but, but what you take away. You would, okay, once you cut it, that it can be used in a house, you might call it lumber, okay? You don't call it tree, like, oh, do you like my tree, you know, a table? You say, that's a wooden table, okay? This is a disconnect. In Hebrew, it's all tree. The Hebrew word is eights. So if you have an eights planted in your yard, if you cut it down and make a house, you have a tree made of eights, okay? If this right here is uh, a little, I don't know what this is, a little tray made of eights. This is a tree tray, okay? That's how they think about it, okay? This is why we miss it, because we're going to come to these covenant-making moments. We're going to step through them, and a tree's going to be there, but you might not see it because you speak English, and I speak English, so I don't see that. I see wood. I see uh, firewood, you know, to kindle. I see an object, maybe something that was built. They would see, oh, this is eights. This is tree at that moment. So let's kind of walk through some of those. The very first covenant made is with Noah, right? <clears throat> Washes the world after, after the flood. Noah comes to land, first of all, in what? An ark made of tree. This is an eights ark. This is a tree ark, Okay. And he lands on top of a mountain, Mount Ararat. Mountain, tree, interesting. And that God makes a covenant with him there that I will never destroy this again. And of course, he builds an altar right there with tree as well and makes a sacrifice. Second uh, covenant that's made, Abraham, right? <clears throat> covenant is made with Abraham. He's, he, he's promised a son. Do you remember Isaac? But then God says, do you really love me more than the gift I gave you? And so I'm going to test you. Remember what he said? He said, put something on Isaac's back, wood to build an altar, put tree on your son's back, and I want you to walk up that mountain, Mount Moriah, and I want you to sacrifice him there. And so he does it. He follows through, and right before he's going to do it, God stops and says, I didn't want you to do it. I wanted to know if I could trust you. More importantly, I wanted you to know that you can trust me, right? And then at the corner of Abraham's eye, what does he see? He sees a ram that's caught in a, a thicket, a little, a little eights. And so he does the sacrifice there, Mount Moriah. We, we go to another, the next covenant made with Moses and all the Israelites. And do you remember where God gives them the law? It's not Mount Ararat, it's not Mount Moriah. It's Mount Sinai, another mountain. And he gives them the law there, and he said, wait, wait a minute, there's no tree. But the first time that Moses met God at that very location, he saw God in a burning, oh, interesting, a little burning eights, a little burning tree, and that's where he met God. There's a design pattern, repetition with variation. But a careful reader starting to go, there's something to this, right? Because remember, people are like trees, 
and our destiny is tied to at least one of those trees. <clears throat> and God wants us to keep asking the question, will we ever see that original tree, the tree of life from the garden? Will we ever have access to it? <clears throat> all throughout Scripture, and I'm just, I'm just picking a couple, it's replete, it's all over the place. Once you see it, you'll kind of not be able to unsee it. Let me just give you a couple examples. That biblical writers are constantly going on the assumption People are like trees, and our destiny is tied to them. Listen to Psalm chapter 1, the longest book in the Bible. It opens up with this. Blessed is the man who walks not on the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is on the law, the Torah of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. What's he like? Oh, he's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and does not, and the leaf does not wither, all that he does flourishes. Even the prophets, you go into the prophets, Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 7 wrote this, blessed is the man who trusts in Yahweh, whose trust is the Lord. He's like, what's he like? He's like a tree. Well, of course he is. We know that. That's on page one. He's like a tree planted by streams of water. And again, we could go on and on. Even just think about this, we get to the New Testament. When Paul says, hey, do you know what it's like when the Holy Spirit gets a hold of your heart and really transforms you? You, you begin to experience things grow out of your like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and self-control. And what are those things? The fruit of the Spirit. Interesting. Paul's not pulling that out of thin air like, oh, I got a, I got a great one. He knows his Old Testament. He knows that people are like trees and that our destiny is attached to one of those trees in particular. <clears throat> now, we remember in the Old Testament, after King Solomon died, the kingdom of Israel, it's, it's split. Uh, Israel begins to abandon faithfulness to Yahweh, worship other gods. They, they betray and exploit their own fellow Israelites, and so God judges them. And God allows foreign nations, if you remember, to come in, to sack the cities, to take the people away. And when the biblical authors speak now, what is Israel like? What is, what is the kingdom, the seed of, of David, um, <clears throat> that whole thing? What's, what's it like? They say, well, as Isaiah 11.1 1 says, it's a, it's a stump. That's what Israel's like, it's a stump. But there was a whisper of promise. A whisper of promise, and it was this. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. A branch from the roots shall bear fruit. It may not be all over. There may be hope. Um, maybe it's not over. Jeremiah 23, verse 5. The prophet writes this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. That's the most common language in, in the prophets to speak of this branch man. Someone is going to be coming and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice, righteousness in the land. Or even Zechariah, they're all picking up on the same thing. And say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, the man whose name is the branch. Very much identified with that. For he shall branch out from his place and he shall build the temple or the dwelling place of the Lord. 
And there's this great promise of all these covenants. There's one covenant we didn't talk about, the covenant with David. David says, I want to make a temple for you, a house. And he says, you've got too much blood on your hand, but I'll do it through your son. And I'll make my covenant with your son. And, and, and he will build it, so here's the covenant. And in response to that covenant, what's built is on Mount Zion, there's a temple. And if you've ever seen pictures of the temple, it's filled with carvings of trees, pomegranate trees. The only light source for the inside of the temple is ten menorahs, five on the left side, five on the right side. Each of them has seven branches. What is a menorah designed to look like? A tree. If you've never noticed that, go look at a picture of a menorah. It looks like a tree. You're supposed to think of that. It's supposed to make you wonder, will I ever see that tree again? Every covenant-making moment. Now, all of a sudden, Jesus shows up. We're, we're looking for the branch, man. Jesus shows up, and he starts talking about the kingdom of God. He said, it's like a seed that you put in the ground, and then it grows into this amazing, huge tree that all the birds of heaven can rest in. It's functional and beautiful, right? He speaks of himself in terms of a tree. John 15, 5. Jesus says, I am the vine. You're the... He's not pulling this out of thin air. He knows his Old Testament. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. There's that imagery again. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And then in verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and be like a tree, (laughs) bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide. So we're, we're still left, though. How does that work out? We're still left with a bit of a haunting question. Will we ever see that tree, the tree of life, back from Genesis chapter one? Because we know that people are like trees, and that our destinies are tied to one particular one. Well, God had one more covenant to make, right? He had made the one with Noah. He had made the one with Abraham, with Moses, with David. There was one more yet that he had to make. And it wasn't on Mount Ararat with, a, with an ark, a wood ark. It wasn't on Mount Moriah with fire wood. It wasn't on Mount Sinai with a, with a tree that was on fire. It wasn't on Mount Zion with these tr- beautiful, beautiful ark tree designs in, in the wood and in, in the gold. This mountain was grotesque. It was disgusting. It was sad. And this tree, this tree was an instrument of cruelty. And this is the language that's used, John chapter 19. It said, so they took Jesus and they went out with him bearing his own tree. He was carrying one. And they took him to the place called the Place of the Skull. It's a disgusting name. In Aramaic, they call it Golgotha. The Place of the Skull. And there they crucified the creator of the universe on one of the trees that the humans had perverted to make something cruel. And with him, two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on that gross tree, cross, 
It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. It's fascinating. Early followers of Jesus, this wasn't lost on. When they spoke of the cross, oftentimes the earliest ones didn't even call it the cross. Sometimes they did. Uh, they, They called it a tree because they knew that this was the culmination of a design pattern that was all throughout their book. It was unavoidably leading somewhere that they couldn't see, they couldn't figure out how exactly, but this was the culmination of a design pattern that God was weaving into the fabric of His epic narrative, the Bible, and what He was doing in the world. And so Peter, in the book of Acts, when he's preaching, he says, he says this, and we are witnesses of all that He, Jesus, did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem, the capital. They put Him to death, how? Hanging Him on a tree. He, he doesn't want this to be missed. Or likewise, Paul in Acts chapter 13, he's just been talking about the seed of David in the previous context, the seed, what trees have, what people have, the seed of David. And he said, that seed came in the person of Jesus. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Or one of Jesus' three closest friends, Peter, he puts it this way in 1 Peter 2.24. Jesus, he himself bore our sins in his body where? On another tree. This one was different though. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, we have been brought back into health, brought back into wholeness. Where does health and wholeness live? God's presence. He's saying, You're going to get access to the presence of God. And you know what is in the presence of God? The tree. (laughs) That's, That's our hope. The final tree covenant on a high place opened the doors, and it finally answered that ancient, haunting question, will we ever see the tree again? In the very last book of the Bible, Jesus reveals himself to John on Patmos, and in Revelation chapter 2, verse 7, he says this, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And then Jesus finishes by saying, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of there it is. We haven't seen that one in a long time. We didn't know. We didn't know if it would work. We didn't know if we could get back there. I will grant them to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. I mean, it's where God is. You get God, you get that. Okay? New heavens and new earth. End of the book. The last pages of the Bible. Revelation 22, verse 2. It says, um, Uh, John is describing the new heavens and the new earth, new creation, what's it going to be like? And he says, through the middle of the streets of the city also, on the other side of the river, there it is, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree are for the healing of those divided nations that were divided back in the Old Testament. And then right after that, blessed are those who wash their robes, so that they may have the right to that, to the tree of life, and that they may enter the city through the gates. You guys, Good Friday can only be called good, and and we always scratch our heads, why would would you name it that? Good Friday can only be called good because through the crucifixion, the death on this ugly tree over here, that we will be able to eat from the tree 
of life. And here's the reality of what God is able to do. The greatest evil ever committed in human history, you know what it is? It's deicide, the death of God. The greatest evil in all of human history, God was able to take that and to paradoxically, it was the death blow and God's glorious good plan to redeem humanity, us, from our sin and from the powers of darkness. And so on Good Friday, you know what we do? We remember that and we proclaim it. We keep reciting it to ourselves because I forget it. (laughs) We remember and we proclaim. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do over the next few moments. As as you remain seated, I'm going to invite you to hold the communion elements in your hand in some way that's meaningful, some way that you reflect on the body and the blood of Christ, which is to say the cross, the God who took our punishment. The apostle Paul wrote to the believers in Corinth, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's take the cup. For as often as you eat this bread, Paul said, and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And so we tonight, we're proclaiming the greatness of God. Amen? That God is so great 